Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Pray with me. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Amen. Lift up the light of your countenance upon us, O Lord. Father, we would see Jesus. We would see your eternal glory, whatever glimpse we can catch in the face of your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would make us like yourself by showing yourself to us. And Spirit, surround us in the thick cloud of your glory so that everywhere we turn, we would see your splendor. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. When I was a high school rhetoric teacher, I taught a unit on advertising, how ads convey and obscure and manipulate. And one of my favorite days was the first day of that unit. I would open by showing one really impressive ad. And one year, it was an Olympics year. And this is when the big companies really pull out their big guns, advertising-wise, right? And I remember showing this super cinematic ad. It was two minutes long. It was basically a short film. And I I turn off the lights in the classroom, and I cue up the projector, and I press play. And the ad was about these four fictional Olympic athletes, only it showed you their entire life story in these quick scenes. So, so in quick scenes, it shows you the natural disaster that destroyed their childhood home, or it shows you the really intense, brutal coach who just makes them want to give up the sport forever, or, or it shows you the pain of a training injury. And, and as each of these scenes flashed by, it also shows the athlete's mother, in each of these scenes. And the mother is there comforting, consoling, calming, encouraging them to push through the adversity. And there's no product placement that you can see. There's no loud logos. You're just sucked into this narrative of these four athletes. And then, in these quick-cut scenes, the athletes have their apotheosis moment of success. They win the match the meat, the race, and the camera in that moment of glory pans and shows their mothers, tears in their eyes, embracing their children, brimming with pride and joy. And the children in that moment, these professional athletes, they know the weight of their mother's sacrifice. And then the screen fades to white, and the elegant text comes on the screen. It takes someone strong to make someone strong. Thank you, Mom. And then it flashes, so briefly, this series of logos of these household products. And then it shows the parent company's logo with the tag, Proud Sponsor of Moms. And at this point, the classroom is silent. Because if you ever want to silence a group of high schoolers, you turn on a video. They're like babies. And I turn the lights on. And you can see half the class, you know, wiping a tear from their eyes. And I step back in front of the class and I say, that is an evil ad. And everyone gasps or groans, how could I say such a thing? Don't I love my mother? But I would respond with a simple question, why does this ad exist? Why are you seeing this? And I'd invite my students then to think about the conditions under which advertisements are invented, created, marketed. Were the executives of this company just sitting around the boardroom solemnly agreeing that moms needed a really good PR boost? That they just really loved their mothers and this was a way they could express it? 
No, of course not. They want their products that their company produces to be associated with this essential human relationship. They want their detergents and batteries to represent love. They're capitalizing, monetizing, inserting themselves into the love of mothers. And I find that morally execrable. And so that's one of the questions that I would want to leave my students with, to carry with them into this world of marketing. Why am I seeing this? Why am I seeing this? It's a useful question for all kinds of phenomena. It's, it's also the reason why I abhor those viral proposal videos that were popular for about 10 years ago, and I'm going to lose some of you here. Um, <laughs> and if you proposed in this way, look, I'm glad you're married, all right? Let me just say that. <laughs> but you know the ones, right? The, the lip sync proposal, the flash mob proposal, the epic scavenger hunt proposal, the ones that end up with hundreds of thousands or millions of views, and I abhor them. Now, before you think that I am just an embittered, anti-romantic snob, it's not that I'm against grand gestures. It's not that I'm against public proposals, right? Ask me sometime about how I proposed to Aaron, but it's that question again. Why am I seeing this? Why is this hugely significant moment in a couple's life together, this moment when they first pledge themselves to one another, why is it being turned into content? Why is it being filmed and then broadcast to strangers, no less? Isn't the true audience for a proposal supposed to be an audience of one? Why am I seeing this? And it's a question that we can also ask about our gospel passage this morning. We just heard from Luke a report of a glorious moment, one of the most glorious moments in the world's history, you can fairly say, of Jesus shining in his divine glory, surrounded by the glory cloud of the Spirit and commended by the Father. And it's especially intriguing because the end of our passage says that Peter, James, and John go up with Jesus on the mountain and they see this incredible vision and then they don't tell anybody. Mark's gospel account specifies even further. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves. So it's not broadcast, at least not at first, yet here we are reading in each of the synoptic gospels an account of the transfiguration. So eventually... Presumably they followed, they obeyed Jesus' commands, but Peter, James, and John eventually tell the other disciples what they saw. And it's kind of fun to imagine that conversation, just like the look on the other disciples' faces. You saw what on that hike? <laughs> you didn't tell us? But eventually it gets related, and now we too are invited to encounter, to see this remarkable event, and it's worth asking, why am I seeing this strange and dazzling vision on the mountain? But before we can really answer the question, why am I seeing it, we should get clear on what exactly we're seeing. So let's go to the passage. We're in Luke 9, beginning in verse 28. It's eight days after Jesus first begins to tell his disciples that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. The Son of Man has to be killed 
and on the third day be raised. And the disciples are confused by this message, to say the least. Peter at this point has confessed that Jesus is the Messiah, the anointed one who's been sent by God to save Israel, but they don't yet understand that the Messiah's mission involves suffering and dying for the sake of the people. That's where we are in the story, and it's at this point that Jesus takes up three of his closest disciples, his closest companions, Peter, James, and John, up a mountain, and he begins to pray. And to really understand what's going on here, what Jesus is doing, we're supposed to remember and hold in our minds when this has happened before. Because there's another place in Scripture where a man leads three of his closest companions up a mountain to encounter God. Do you know where it is? It's only one place, really. It's when Moses takes Aaron and Nadab and Abihu up, the Mount, up Mount Sinai in Exodus 24, and they go up this mountain, and they experience what's called a theophany, this vision, this manifestation of the glory of God. And so just with this little detail that Jesus takes three of his disciples up a mountain, we're supposed to be thinking about Moses and thinking about visions of God on a mountain. And that's even before Moses literally shows up in our passage. And, and since we have Moses on the brain, we also think of Exodus 33 and 34, where our Old Testament lesson came this morning, where Moses asks Yahweh for a vision of his glory. And then Yahweh agrees He descends in a cloud. He passes before Moses, and Moses' face shines from the encounter. You can hear the similarities between then and now, right? But there's a few major differences, too, which also communicate just as much. Why does Moses' face shine? Why does his face shine? It's not his own radiance, right? He, he, doesn't, he doesn't cause his face to shine. It shines because it's a reflection of the glory of Yahweh that he's been permitted to see. But also remember, Moses isn't permitted to see Yahweh's face. Yahweh tells him, you can't see my face because no man can see my face and live. So Moses' face shines so brightly and painfully that he has to veil his face before the people. That's just from seeing God's back, right? God presents himself with his back. So we have Moses in our minds, and let's compare this transfiguration. Peter and James are there with Jesus praying, and as they apparently do pretty regularly, they fall asleep or they're dozing. So if you've ever fallen asleep during a time of prayer, you're in good company, right? But then they awake, and they behold something that I think is basically just indescribable. It's like Ezekiel's vision of the glory chariot of Yahweh or John's apocalypse. Jesus the Son is praying, communing with the Father, and his appearance is changed. He is shining from head to him with this dazzling, flashing light that we can only imperfectly describe. I asked Thomas Graham earlier this week what his thoughts on the transfiguration were, and he focused in on that brightness. Whiter than any soap in all creation, he said. Brighter even than the noonday sun, the moon and the stars. And that's exactly right. This light which shines from Jesus' face and his raiment has a brightness and a purity that all other lights pale in comparison to. I, I picture that scene from Oppenheimer, if you've, if you've seen that film, where everyone puts on their round little goggles or like hides behind the little lead sheet just to see the atomic bomb flash and the light that, that pierces from that. Only this light coming off of Jesus is even brighter, even purer 
and yet there's a gentleness to its irradiating power. This is light, which is not destruction, but light, which is life. And Peter and James and John, their eyes adjust, and they're able to behold, and what they see is they see Jesus as he truly is. They see the eternally begotten Son of God dwelling in and radiating the uncreated light. John will later write in his gospel that Jesus is God tabernacling with his people. God dwelling with, intenting himself with his people. So day to day, the the people see Jesus and he looks, you know, as unremarkable as a tent. Day to day, Jesus wears man's smudge and shares man's smell as he walks The earth, Jesus' glory is veiled like a bride's waiting face. Yet for this brief moment on the mountain, as Jesus is praying, he lifts the veil and we see him as he is. Jesus is God, fully divine, even as he veils that Godhead in human form. And here the contrast with Moses really highlights Jesus' unique glory. Moses' shining face was just a reflection, but Jesus' radiance belongs to him. Moses shines because he encounters the veiled glory of God's back. In Jesus, we see God's very face, his countenance of exceeding glory. This is the one to whom all glory in heaven and on earth belong. Jesus is the glory face of God, shining in the presence of his apostles, and they're not consumed. The fullness of time has come, and he who has been veiled all through Israel's history is making himself known. The glory of heaven is presenting itself on earth. And if that's not glorious enough, suddenly Moses and Elijah, the great celebrities of the people of God, are there on the mountain talking with Jesus. And these two great streams of God's revelation to his people are embodied before these disciples. You have Moses who represents the law, and Elijah, who represents the prophets, and they appear in glory, and they're speaking to Jesus about his departure. The word there in the Greek is the word exodus, right? They know a thing or two about exodus. They're talking to Jesus about his exodus. The law and the prophets have always been pointing to and promising this reality that we are looking at this morning, that God, in his glory, would condescend to earth, and would lead his people through the Red Sea of death on the dry land of faith and would swallow his enemies behind them. And then, just like at Jesus' baptism, another scene that's probably in our minds right now, the Spirit descends. At Jesus' baptism, you'll remember it's as a dove. Here, it's as this cloud of glory. I remember when I was 16 years old, the first time that I drove in fog, like a, like a thick, dense fog, and I hadn't done it before, and so naturally I thought, I can't really see, let's, let's increase the light. I turned the brights on. And if you've ever done that, you know when you turn the brights on in fog, the, the light refracts and diffuses, and, and you end up only like seeing a blaze of light. You, you can't see anything. You're just surrounded by this light. And I imagine it's basically the same effect on that holy mountain. The uncreated glory of the Son of God is shining from his face and clothes, 
And then the Spirit, the glory cloud, disperses and diffuses that glory light so it's the only thing that the disciples can see. You've been inundated. You're just bathed with the glory of God. And then in the midst of that blazing glory, you hear the voice of the Father, just like at Jesus' baptism. And the Father says, this is my beloved Son, my chosen one. And notice The Father's voice says, this is my son, this is my chosen one. They're singular. Moses and Elijah were still there, right? They too have been chosen ones of God. God has used them as his chosen instruments, and yet Moses and Elijah know that they were chosen for the sake of this chosen one. They have led God's people and spoken God's promises so that that we might know the one, God's son, God himself tabernacling with his people. And so the father says, this is my beloved son. This is my chosen one. And then he says, hear him. Listen to him. They're they're seeing this blaze of glory, and the father says, listen. There's this confusion of senses almost. See the glory and hear him. And he's addressing the disciples at this moment. He's telling the disciples, hear Jesus Moses and Elijah are there on the mountain, the law and the prophets, but the Father's instruction is to hear Jesus. The whole Bible, every part, points to Christ Jesus, who was and is God's greatest work, reconciling the world to himself. And this command that the Father speaks teaches us how we should approach the Scriptures, how to read the Bible. Whenever you read the prophets, when Elijah speaks... You're supposed to hear Jesus. When you read the law, when Moses speaks, you're supposed to hear Jesus. Hear him. Listen for him because Jesus is God's final word to the world. He is the last word in the great debate over whether God loves the world that he has created. And so now we know what we've seen at the transfiguration. The transfiguration shows Jesus indisputably to be the glory of the triune God made manifest. It proves him to be the final word of God to to us. And since we know what we've seen, we can start to answer the question, why am I seeing this? Why are we seeing this glory? This is why. We need to see Christ's glory. We need to see the glory of Jesus because we can't stay on the mountain. Not yet. Jesus doesn't stay on this mountain. He doesn't stay in the glory cloud of the Spirit and the approval of the Father. Just like he did at the incarnation, Jesus sets aside his glory so that once again he can come down into our inglorious world of sin and strife and suffering and save us because there's soon to be another moment on another mountain where Jesus will display the glory of God as he's high and lifted up between two figures. Only this time, it's not Moses and Elijah. Jesus is lifted up between two thieves. The glory of Jesus Christ is made known to us not only in his shining face and his raiment, but also in his pierced side and his thorn-crowned brow. The glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, it doesn't only look like a shining brightness, though it does. It also looks like the darkness at midday. Our God's glory 
is not only his radiant splendor, but also his love which condescends, his utter humility, his incomprehensible willingness to suffer and make satisfaction not only for his friends, but for his enemies, to take away your sin and the sin of the whole world. And if Jesus goes down the mountain to bear the shame of sinners, to carry their burden on his shoulders and to feel the weight of their death dragging him down, you better believe that we're called to do the same. If Jesus doesn't stay on the mountain, we don't get to stay on the mountain. He's already told us this. Pick up your cross. Come down the mountain. Consider Peter, Peter's response in this moment. Peter knows that it is good and pleasant to be here on this mountain. It is good to abide in the luminous, glorious presence of Christ. It's good to listen to the law and the prophets witnessing to Christ. Peter has a taste of glory and joy, but his mistake is thinking that he can freeze time, that he can bottle up this awe, that he can fit glory into a tent of his own making. Peter didn't know what he was saying. See, Peter, like us, was tired of the hustle and bustle of life down the mountain. He was tired of the trials, the tragedies, the travails of life on earth. He wanted to stay in the glory. But Jesus knew that Peter, too, had to go down the mountain because the path to glory always arrives at the cross. And Peter, like his Savior, would win his crown of glory by taking up his cross and following Jesus. So why am I seeing this glorious light? Why am I seeing, why are you seeing the glory face of God this morning? It's not because the Father told the Son that he needed a good PR campaign. It's not because God's real power comes from millions of people liking his proverbial videos. We see this glory because we need a glimpse of the triumphant glory of God if we're going to face the lives of long-suffering service to which God is calling us. We need to know the glory is real. We need to know it's real. We need to know that it resides fully in Jesus the Son, and we need to see it because we then have to bear that glory into the world. If you regularly bask in Christ's presence, if you habitually labor in prayer to the Father, if you weekly worship in the house that the Spirit is building, the triune God is forming you into the image of His Son. And He's doing that so that you might then go out into the world, beaming these refracted, refracted little flares of Christ's glory into the world. I bet you've seen it before, this glimpse of Christ's glory in another disciple of Christ Jesus. You've probably seen a glimpse of Christ's glory in the face or the service of a Christian whose love or selfless servants service gave you a glimpse of the world transfigured, a glimpse of the world that looks like its Savior. And that same little ref reflection of glory is meant to be on your face. You are meant to be an unveiled face whom the sun's glory irradiates and then shines from in a dark world. I think of Hopkins' great stanza that the righteous person acts in God's eye what in God's eye he is, Christ. 
For Christ plays in 10,000 places, lovely in limbs and lovely in eyes not his, to the Father through the features of men's faces. I know it's kind of weird to recite poetry from the pulpit. It's hard, you have to like sit with it a while. What he's saying there, Christ makes himself known in this world through your limbs, through the features of your faces. It's good for us to gather for worship. It's good to hear Christ's excellencies proclaimed. It's good to glimpse the radiance of Christ's glory in the house of the Lord and to taste his promises to you on your tongue. But we don't get to stay here forever. Not yet. We're sent back into the world so that Christ can play in our limbs and shine from our faces. You don't get to stay on the mountain. Not yet. You've got to go down. And gather the people in. Bring them to the mountain. Show them the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Because what we proclaim is not we ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. With ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For the same God who said, let light shine out of darkness. That same God who created the world in light has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And as the world fills with the glints and gleamings of that light, of Christ's eternal glory reflected in the faces and in the lives of his people, we can begin to see the purpose for which we were created, the end for which God created the world, the, the reason God made you, so that you could behold the glory of God. Theologians talk about it as the beatific vision. See, there is coming a day. It's not here yet, but there's coming a day when the glory glimpse that we get on the mountain will shine as the noonday sun. There's coming a day when the Lamb will be the light of the whole city. Beloved John, who was there on the mountain and saw the glory, he later says to us, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, when our Lord appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. This is your hope, Christian, that you will behold Jesus in transfigured glory. You will see him as he is, and when you do, you will be like him. Paul says in Philippians 3 that we await a Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ, who will transfigure our bodies, our lowly bodies, to be like his glorious body. This is your hope, Christian, that you will have a glorious body like the shining body of the Son of God. Do you remember two weeks ago, the gospel reading was the parable of the wheat and the tares. And do, do you remember how it ends? Jesus says that when the judgment comes, the tares will be cast into the fire, and at that point, this is what Jesus says will happen, the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. This is your hope, Christian. You will shine with the glory of the risen sun in the kingdom of your Father. Can you imagine it? Hardly. But I can give you an image to start with. I open the sermon by talking about two kinds of video that I very much dislike. Can I tell you a genre that I do like? It's the kind of video where someone who has been blind or deaf 
receive some kind of medical intervention, a cochlear implant or uh, a cataract surgery or something along the lines, and then sees or hears for the first time. I weep at these every time. And I know that I'm still an outsider when I watch these videos. I'm kind of like a voyeur. I'm watching it from the outside, and yet, unlike a viral proposal video, I can answer the question, why am I seeing this? We are privileged to see these little miraculous interventions because they are icons of what it will be like when we see the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ with these eyes and when we hear the voice of our Father with these ears, when the faculties that God has given to us are restored and opened and we behold him. Not everyone with a disability gets to experience this kind of healing in this lifetime. And those of us who do have disabilities probably understand this longing far better than the rest of us. But I can say it's coming for all of us in the age to come. The sheer delight in the face of a child who hears his mother's voice for the first time. The tears of the man who sees the countenance of his wife for the first time. Can you imagine the joys which await us in the transfigured glory of the kingdom when with our ears we finally hear the voice of the Father and with our eyes open wide we finally see our Lord face to face. Amen.